Maddie Pryor with Come Down, I Love Divine. And here from an album called Songs I Sang at Sunday School, it's Spirit of God Unseen as the Wind. one of the first Western businessmen to set up in Russia after the collapse of communism. He explained to Michael Barclay how he became involved and the problems which he faced when dealing with a corrupt government. Bill Browder has written a best-selling book about his experiences called Red Notice. 
Bill Browder describes himself as Vladimir Putin's number one enemy. When Putin came to power, Browder was the most successful international businessman in Moscow, seizing the opportunities offered by the collapse of communism to build up a multi-billion pound investment fund. But then he uncovered what he calls serious corruption at various state-backed companies. In 2005, he was detained by the authorities and kicked out of Russia. His tax advisor, Sergei Magnitsky, was arrested and died in prison in Moscow in 2009. In his memory, Browder has spent the past decade leading a global campaign against Russian corruption. Magnitsky acts have now been passed in America, Britain and Europe. Legislation freezing the assets and banning travel of officials guilty of human rights violations. Browder's exciting account of his time in Russia, Red Notice, has become a bestseller on both sides of the Atlantic. Well, it really does read like a thriller, Bill. It starts at the point where you're detained in the airport in Moscow, your passport's been taken away, you don't know why you're there or indeed whether you'll ever be able to get home to Britain again. That was the scariest part, getting off that plane. It was um, November 13th, 2005. Um, I, I, I was flying back to Moscow and I was arrested, kept in, in the airport detention center for 15 hours, and then eventually um, deported back to London and declared a threat to national security. And I felt terrible about that because my life was in Russia and I desperately wanted to get back to Russia. And I tried to get back to Russia thinking that that was the worst that would happen. But, but what I didn't understand was that this was the beginning of the worst nightmare that anyone could ever experience. Um, 18 months later, 25 police officers raided my office in Moscow. Uh, 25 more police officers raided the office of a, an American law firm I used in Moscow. And the purpose of these raids was to seize all of our stamps, seals, and certificates, our official documents, um, through which we sort of managed our investment fund. And they, they found all those documents at the law firm, seized them. And the next thing we knew, we didn't even own our investment companies anymore. They had been fraudulently re-registered using effectively identity theft from these documents. So that was 16 years ago now, and though you did get her out of Russia, you've really been living in fear since. I mean, for example, I'm here in my farmhouse in Wales at the moment. You're in London, but I think you would rather not say where. Yeah, I can't say where because... Um, Things have um, deteriorated so much from that fateful day on November 13th, 2005, that um, Vladimir Putin wants me um, dead. And they've tried to track me down through all sorts of different means. They've organized or tried to organize um, illegal rendition. They've issued eight Interpol arrest warrants for me to have me arrested. And they've applied to the British government to have me extradited. They've followed me around, surveilled me, chased me, sued me, made movies about me. In very objective terms, I'm Putin's number one foreign enemy. Well, it's an extraordinarily dramatic story, and we're going to explore it a bit more over the next star. But let's get to some music first. It's a playlist with lots of drama, too. You obviously love opera. Indeed, I do. I was actually introduced to opera through my wife, who's Russian. And I think the first thing on the playlist is um, one of the first operas that she took me to uh, at the Bolshoi Theatre. It was Carmen. And um, this, I would say this is my favorite uh, song of Carmen, Tori Adore. And this was, of course, when you could go and move around fairly freely. So this reminds you of good old days before that uh, tragedy engulfed you. 
Indeed. Um, and this was the good times before the bad times. The minute you hear that uh, melody getting underway, Bill, you sort of feel your heart lift, don't you? For some reason, that, that song really touches me. Thomas Hampson as Escamillo, the Toreador, in music from the first act of Bizet's Carmen. Michel Plasson was conducting the Toulouse Capital National Orchestra and the choir Les Elements. Let's now go back to the beginning of your story, Bill Browder, because... You have a very unusual background for a billionaire capitalist, especially in terms of your grandfather. Yeah, I'm probably the least likely person to have had my story. I, my grandfather was the um, general secretary of the American Communist Party from 1932 to 1945. Uh, before becoming that, he went to Russia in 1927, met a Russian woman who became his wife. My father was born in Moscow. And then he returned to America. And then uh, during the 1950s, he was persecuted very viciously during the McCarthy era for being a communist. And I was born in 1964, I'm 56 years old. But when I was going through my teenage rebellion, I was trying to figure out a good way of rebelling from this family of communists. And I came up with the perfect idea, which was to put on a suit and tie and become a capitalist. <laughs> and, and I did that. And I went to Stanford Business School in 1987. And I graduated 1989, which was the year that the Berlin Wall came down. And after business school, I had this epiphany, which is that if my grandfather was the biggest communist in America and the Berlin Wall has just come down, I'm going to try to become the biggest capitalist in Eastern Europe. <laughs> you were actually brought up in quite a rough area of Chicago, weren't you? So much so that you're 
musical career, if I can put it that way, as a child, ended when your flute was stolen. Indeed. I, I grew up on the south side of Chicago in an area called Hyde Park. And it, it basically, you're dead if you cross 63rd Street. You're dead if you cross 47th Street. And you're dead if you cross Cottage Grove to the west. <laughs> and so you have to stay within those areas. And it doesn't mean that the people from those areas stay out of our area. And, and I played the flute as a young boy. And I have to say, I wasn't very good at it. And I was like the last flute in the orchestra. And my uncle was a very successful flutist. He was a mathematician, but also a flutist. And he gave me a flute, a very nice, a beautiful flute, a, a silver flute that I played, even though I didn't do it very well. And one day as I was walking to school, my flute was stolen by some rough kids from the other side of the uh, demarcation line. And that was the end of my flute um, <laughs> your, career. Your entire career seems to revolve around confronting thugs of one sort or another. But we have got some music which you would like to have been able to play, wouldn't you? Indeed, Vivaldi Flute Concerto Number 2. And just because I don't play the flute doesn't mean I don't love the flute, and that's why I chose it. This is the one which is called La Notte.
Bruno Cavallo performing music from Vivaldi's Flute Concerto No. 2 in G minor with Riccardo Muti, conducting soloists from the Philharmonic Orchestra of La Scala Milan. Music to remind you, Bill Browder, of your flute-playing days. Here's a song for Pentecost from The Brilliant. The song is called Breathe. to Zwitten a series of meditations based on the Psalms. 
Today we hear Malcolm's reading of Psalm 16. It's followed by Tenebrae singing a song by Antieta, the leading Spanish composer of the Renaissance, and arranged by Bob Chilcott. A response to Psalm 16. Then help me step by step, my guide and friend. Preserve me, O my God, in whom I trust. My other goods are nothing in the end. How quickly they decay, how swiftly rust. But through it all you stay and comfort me. My one abiding joy, when all the rest have flown so swiftly by. For now I see my true inheritance. Now I look up and find you still beside me, showing me the path of life. In your right hand the cup of blessings, full to overflowing. Your left hand upholds me still and gives me hope. I have a goodly heritage. You pour on me your graces undeserved. You raise and comfort me until I fall no more. Frostrup has a programme called Open Book on Radio 4, where she talks to authors about their work. You can hear some of her previous interviews on the Books and Authors podcast on BBC Sound's website. Today we hear Bettina Gappa from Zimbabwe talking about the Book of Memory. 
we start in Zimbabwe, where one little girl is being washed of her sins. When it came to my turn, the Baptist asked whether I accepted Jesus and rejected Satan. All I could think of was that vast, terrible river and the water that was muddy and brown. There was something in that murderous water, and Juzu, I just knew it, something that stole children. It would come for me. It was coming for me. I could feel it pulling me down, down. Do you accept Jesus? Do you reject Satan? The Baptist said. There was only one way that I could think of to save myself from the terror of all that water. In deadly fear, I clung to the Baptist. No, no, I shouted. I do not accept Jesus. My mouth filled with water, and I could say no more. The choice was a simple one for me. Rejecting Satan meant putting my face in that river. Accepting Jesus meant the flow of that water over me. Accept Jesus! The Baptist was now shouting. Reject Satan! I screamed and swallowed water as I fought against him. I was now full of terror, and all my strength was directed at making him stop. Bettina Gapper, reading from her debut novel, The Book of Memory, a gradual unfurling of its eponymous heroine's life story, and in particular, her sale as a child to a wealthy white man. Now, as an adult, Memory, an albino, is piecing together the past in Harari's Chikarubi Maximum Security Prison, where she's waiting to see if her death sentence for murder will be commuted. Her record of the events leading to her imprisonment is set against a backdrop of political upheaval and personal trauma, where ultimately nothing is as it first seems. Zimbabwean Gapper, who now lives in Switzerland, first came to public attention with her collection of short stories and Elegy for Easterly, an engaging and at times darkly comic portrait of her birthplace through a chorus of different voices, which won the Guardian First Book Award in 2009. She joins me on the line from Geneva now. Tina, as I mentioned, uh, you were previously lauded for your short stories, and it's been, uh, I think, about six years since that collection was published. Did you find longer form a bit more of a challenge than you thought? (laughs) Six long, arid years. Writing a novel is very different from writing 20 or whatever short stories, and I did find the long form difficult. But there are also many other factors, uh, partly, strangely enough, to do with the success of the first book. Can you elaborate? That sounds far too intriguing for me to leave it at that. <laughs> I suffered very badly from imposter syndrome. I, I, I believe that at some point I was going to be found out, you know, that the first book was some kind of fluke. And eventually people would come to realize that I had pulled the most spectacular con in the world of publishing. <laughs> And now it seems, judging by your debut novel, that that's not the case at all. Let's talk a bit about Memory, your eponymous heroine, who's a black Zimbabwean and also an albino. Why did you choose to make that part of her identity? I wanted to write about race without really writing about race. We have this idea of what whiteness means. Whiteness means privilege. But at the same time, there's a kind of whiteness that is not privileged, which is the whiteness of, of the albino skin. So I wanted to explore those, you know, those themes. But at the same time, because I can't stand issue-driven novels, I didn't really want to write an issue-laden book. And we'll come back to that conversation in a few minutes. Meantime, Ray Charles has some children join him for Everything is Beautiful in Its Own Way. Everything is beautiful in its own way. Like 
Frostrup and Patina Gappa. You talk about the dichotomy of, of, of race and of colour, and in this book you deal with all kinds of themes, religion, witchcraft, infanticide, repressed sexuality. Uh, you go to some pretty dark places, but it also feels like the story's secrets rely in part on our assumptions. The minute that memory is sold to a white man by her parents, mm. or presumed mm. sold, that that stirs up a whole nest of assumptions on our part. Is that something that you, that suggestibility, something that you enjoy playing with? 
I wanted to play a little bit with um, the perceptions that people have when they see uh, certain situations. And I also wanted to question, I wanted to question really the idea of family. And this is a theme that I think I'm going to be going back to again and again. You know, what is friendship? What is love? What is family? And I'm, I'm very interested in exploring relationships, unexpected relationships that arise when you take away all notions of race and color and class and gender and just something something wonderful can happen. And I think that's the relationship that's at the heart of this novel between memory and, and her adopted father. It's really about the, the, the many different forms in which love comes to us. Although it deals with them, um really dark issues. Um, there's also a lot of humour in this book, as there was in your previous collection of stories. Um, memory gets put into this woman's prison with some fairly unsavoury but but very amusing characters. And surprisingly for a lawyer, this is less courtroom drama, this novel, than prisoner cell block H in places. <laughs> um, perhaps we could hear uh, another passage which I think illustrates that. You must point out that you have been on remind for a very long time now, said Verity. Remand collected Mona Lisa. It is remand, not remind. And you must remember, said Jimmy, that a magistrate is your worship, not your lord. Your lord is a judge. No, no, said Verity. What are you talking? She must say my worship and my lordship. My worship, say Foot. Do you think you're in church? But anyway, Evanice interrupted, you don't need all that because you can just speak in Shona and the translator will find the right words for you. Ha! Those translators are the dangerous ones, Munch, said Verity. Why do you think that Patience wants to be a translator? They are the people with the power. They are the very people who will really fix you forever. Like if you say something that is too difficult for them to translate, hodo, they'll just say whatever comes to their heads and the next thing you know, kechke. She made the sound of a key in a lock. Kechke. Well, as we heard in that reading, language is an important issue in this book and, and being able to speak English separates memory from her peers. But there are also constant references to other tribal languages, including Shona, which you mm. strew liberally throughout the book. <laughs> um, how important to you is this fractious use of language? Um, I actually write in the way that people speak. And this is why people actually accuse me of going around and recording people's conversations because I'm very particular about the way people speak. So in that passage, which you're supposed to imagine happening in Shona, there are at least three or four accents, and unfortunately I can't do them all in English, but I love listening to, to the way people talk. One of, the, one of my joys when I go back to Harare is to sit in, in, in a public transport bus and just listen to the different voices and the way slang moves so quickly. I'm very keen and, and very passionate about language and I'm very sorry, Mariella, that there's so much Shona in my book, but I want to believe that it adds to the flavour of, of the place that I'm writing about. Oh, I'm definitely going to get one of those Lingophone Teach Yourself Shona tapes. <laughs> Rosetta Stone. <laughs> you wait. You wait. Next time I speak to you, I'll be totally fluent. Um, the book is deeply Zimbabwean, both in its descriptions of culture and language, yet your own experience is much more westernised. You live in Geneva now. Why does your imagination live in the country you've long left behind? I think it's because I left at such a young age. I, I left Zim when I was 23 years old. I'd just finished my first degree, and I left to do postgraduate studies in Austria and, and in the UK at Cambridge, and then I just never went back. A lot of what Zimbabwe became is something that I experienced through, through the news. You know, I, I experienced the fall of Zimbabwe at a distance. So I still have that, 
that longing for the Zimbabwe that I knew up to the age of 23, and of course, it's never going to come back. I think that's part of the reason why I'm always going to go back to that period. Thank you very much, Bettina Gapper. And the Book of Memory is published by Faber and in bookshops at the start of September. Mariella Frostop there was talking with the novelist Bettina Gapper. She's a Zimbabwean author who now lives in Switzerland. Here's Noel Richards leading with O God of Burning, Cleansing Fire, or Send the Fire. O God of Burning.
Sessions at the Stoney Gathering with Send the Fire. We leave you with Brenton Brown and Hosanna or Praise is Rising. All our fears are washed away, washed away.